0: Welcome to Women in Science, a podcast series where we interview some inspiring women who are breaking barriers in their field and making remarkable contributions to research. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short, and in this episode, we meet UQ's Professor Avril Robertson, a scientist who used her childhood battle with a chronic disease as motivation to work hard so that she could one day help others like her. So Avril, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Can you tell us a little bit about your early career and what got you interested in science and how you got
1: to being here? Well, I would say in my very early life, when I was younger, I suffered from asthma. I missed a huge amount of school. And as a result, I remember um, sitting in classes, not understanding and feeling quite... Isolated in that you want to hide what you don't understand, you copy from others, and you become quite adept at that. And it was only when I got to high school that I started to truly learn because I was well again. Mm. In, In many ways, you can grow out of asthma, which I have done largely. And I became very inspired by chemistry and the power that chemistry has to create drug molecules that can change lives for the better. And I could also relate it to my own experience of being ill. So I think that's where my merging of science with also a passion as a teacher to try and inspire other people to not feel like I did. Mm.
0: And so what did you decide to do after high school then? Was it immediately into sort of a,
1: a chemistry education or? I could see nothing else. I wanted to go and be a chemistry teacher Logical combination, of those two passions. Because my teacher was an inspiration to me at the time. And so I wanted to go in and learn as much chemistry as I possibly could. And I chose an interesting degree, which was a sandwich degree. So it had two years courses, and then you do an industrial placement, which was exciting to me because I thought it would break break up the tedium. And then you would come back and do your honours year. And so I did that, and I did my industrial placement at Sibageige in Switzerland, and that was actually in the agrochemical space. But it really exposed me to what industry jobs look like. And so when I came to the end of my degree, I had actually come out as top student in my year, and the decision was, what do you do next? Do I go into teaching, as I had thought I would? And that was probably because that was where most of my experience had been, or do i go into industry what's next or do i do a phd and i got offered all of those things and i actually decided to choose the phd i had a wonderful phd supervisor i did bioorganic chemistry i looked at bioactive compounds that were anti cancer and that was wonderful and in this at the same time my phd supervisor was very interested in liaising with high schools so i did a lot of school liaison work at the same time And that was really good fun. So I'm glad I chose that path. And I progressed on from there to industry jobs.
0: So what was it like stepping out of your PhD and going to your first industry job? Was it intimidating or was it you'd already had that experience in your training doing industry placement that it didn't seem such a big deal?
1: I think it was more of a shock for me when I did my industrial placement because I had never flown anywhere out of the UK before and I was in my sort of twenties, early twenties and all of a sudden you dropped in the middle of Europe knowing no languages and functioning in a completely different environment and I think I became, I, I started to understand that not everything you touch as a scientist will work. Mm, and, important lesson. And you, you do beat yourself up in the early days because you think, well, if someone else did this, maybe they'd get it to work. But it really, you're not doing yourself any favor. Some science just doesn't work. And, and I had been in that industry environment. So when I moved into industry jobs, it was a fairly natural transition. Mm. It was quite a small company at the time that I joined, Tripos Discovery Research, they had historically been known for their software, their design software, but they'd picked up a chemistry arm and they had a need for another chemist at that time. And it was a really exciting time because it was a time when they were pulling in contracts from all across the world in the drug discovery space, and they were expanding. So I learned a huge amount about contract research, about intellectual property, about milestone-driven projects. So all of those skills that you don't necessarily learn in a traditional science degree.
0: And so how did you then make the jump from industry to your current position
1: where you're doing much more teaching and, and educating? Well, I throughout my industry jobs, retained that interest in education. So I worked with the Royal Society of Chemistry and did outreach activities of chemistry and industry events where I would show schoolchildren what it's like to do a job in industry or what it's like to be a scientist through talks, through demonstrations. And I kept those connections alive. And I had always wondered whether, in the back of my mind, being a high school teacher would be a thing to do. And so during those three, three industry jobs, there were six rounds of redundancy. And so even industry jobs are sometimes not stable. I was never made redundant, but later on in my career, it was a great financial crisis and many industries cut the research. And that certainly happened in my case. I had worked my way through to become head of drug discovery in a an oncology company called CycloCell and was running a really successful program, but they cut all their research. I was heavily pregnant with my second child. and thought, well, I'm just going to stop my career for a while, which is something people don't often do. They don't stop and go, hey, this bit's for me. And so I stopped and I had my second child and my first child went to school and I thoroughly enjoyed that year. Was that I would really recommend scary? it It was because you wonder what's next. Mm. You don't know what's next. And in my head, I think, well, I have a strong CV. I have skills in um Many different areas, not only project management. I could have gone on that ladder. I had skills in research from industry. I had production-type skills as well. So I had a range of skills that I could sell forwards. And I I guess I made a conscious decision not to let that what's next step stress me too much. Mm. It's not so urgent. If your partner has a job, which mine did, I had two children. I took a conscious decision to just enjoy it. But the question is still there, what do you do next? And I still wondered about teaching, and I was still interested in research. I know a lot of the friends I had had moved across to the Drug Discovery Unit in Dundee, so that was one job I applied for, and I got offered the job. But I also at the same time got offered a position in teacher training. And I decided to try the teacher training. I thought, why not now, when I have young children, let's just give it a go. So I did a year's teacher training, and parts of it I enjoyed. I enjoyed the contact with the students. I enjoyed, uh, I guess, having a big influence on their lives, particularly a lot of the children or pupils that I was teaching were from socially deprived environments. So they were not your high-flying, top-notch school kids, but the schools were superb. And for those students who really wanted to change their lives, there was a lot of teachers there who were... PhDs, So they knew how to train those children. They worked through their lunch breaks to try and help those kids, and some of those kids did outstandingly well. So that was inspiring, but at the same time, I was missing the research, and I wasn't sure that I could see myself still doing it when I'm 60. And that was, I guess, a driver for me to think, what else could I do? And at the same time, I had spotted an advert for... University of Queensland on seek i'd never been in australia before Why and not? i applied <laughs> <laughs> and it changed my life uh, in so many ways uh, little did i expect before i knew it i was being offered a job in australia after a half hour interview over skype while i was actually on holiday in shetland which is where i'm from my with my father and my young son at the time. It was only the two of us there. My son was in bed. It was quarter to midnight. He was only months old and then he wakes up. The interview's at midnight and he screamed the whole way through it. My father held him in the furthest corner of the room while he screamed and I did an interview. It was very interesting. And there was a storm
0: storm
1: raging outside because it was the middle of the winter. Summer here, but I was surrounded by snow. So, on the basis of that, what do you do? And then the floods happened in Brisbane. So you're going, hey, I've just accepted a job in a building that's underwater. And um, So it was a very interesting time where I moved my husband out of his job, took two young children and moved across the world to start a career again with seven publications and no grant track record. So that was my start at the University of Queensland as an academic. <laughs>
0: And how do you how
1: do you have the confidence to do that? I think it might be insanity. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a fine line. It's a fine line, isn't it? It is. And I think in my mind, I thought, well, what do we really have to lose? I can go back and be a teacher. I have that qualification. I have a house still in Scotland. And my two young children are young enough to move back before they hit high school. If things are not going out, working out we can move back. We still have a career to go to. So we give it a go. And, <laughs> and not many people would do that. I'm not sure I would recommend it to anyone, but yeah. I have never really regretted it. It's a wonderful place to live. Where when it's not flooding. <laughs> yes, when it's not flooding. And for quite a long time after I moved over here, having moved from Dundee, where it rains all the time, I would wake up and think, hey, it's a nice day, must get out and do something. Because that's not unusual to Queenslanders, but for me it was a real novelty for quite a long time.
0: Mm. And so when you started here, you were in more of a research position. Mm -hmm. And then how did you make that transition to running the biotechnology program? Yeah, that's that's an
1: interesting story. I guess when I came here, I started off by... I was still in a very commercial mindset. I still enjoyed teaching, so I was really keen to be involved in teaching. It's a university, it's a natural match. And so having started in an institute at UQ, I obviously got involved in in research and there was a new project in the group at the time, just starting on the inflammasome. So I used my commercial expertise in that project and that went tremendously well and I can come back to that. But at the same time, I would get to my appraisals and go, why are my teaching skills not being used? Why am I not using them? This is a waste. And I applied for the different positions that come round at UQ and they send out adverts and I would always apply and they go, no, sorry, we've got plenty of people. And one opportunity cropped up and I had a chat with Dr. Philip Sharp across at SCMB. And he said, well, we might have this opportunity opening up in chemical biology. Would you be interested? What are you interested in? I said, I don't care what I do. I could invigilate. I'll volunteer. I don't really mind. I just want to be involved. And I also got the advanced um, chemical laboratories course to be part of because in that third year course, they wanted more than just the science skills. They wanted to be able to, inspire those students to see what kind of jobs were out there, which I obviously had the experience for. Mm. Shortly after taking on the chemical biology tutoring, as I did, the person who was teaching one of those sections, as a res-teach, res- didn't want to do it anymore, and having done it for a year and proved that I could teach, I got the opportunity to lecture that part of the course. It was about a third of the course, nine lectures. and. I actually didn't enjoy that section of the course as a tutor. And so I did ask whether I could change it. And they said, yes, change it to anything you want. Make it interesting and relevant in chemical biology. And that's a double-edged sword. It's great because you can define your own set of nine lectures. But it's also a challenge because you have to look at what's already in the university. Where does it fit? What's needed? What's the cohort look like? And it's a mixture of chemists and biologists. But that went very successfully. And the CCAT scores, was that's the, the scores for the course, were bigger than ever before. So mm-hmm. it was a great success. And I loved it, and I've continued to do it ever since. I also did a graduate certificate in tertiary education, which was supported by the Faculty of Science, School of Chemistry and Molecular Biosciences, and the IMB, and also the group leader that I was with at the time. So that funded my graduate certificate In addition to that, I also did another course in higher education leadership.
0: I'm feeling very underqualified right now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I always add things, and I think that's something important to do through your life, is not just focus on what your immediate job is. It's to add skills to your CV, which I've done all the way through. Like I've done a couple of teaching qualifications, various management qualifications along the way. And so when I came to apply for the director of biotech, Position, I had only just gone from a level B position to a level C. So, level B, I had been when I came over here, which is probably less than my 10 years in industry should have given me. Mm. But that's where I started. And it took many years because I didn't have publications and grant track records to build that up to then apply for the next jump up. So, I applied for the job. I actually asked whether I was even eligible because it was a level de position and never really got a reply and i thought well what have i got to lose a bit like the same mentality i had when i thought let's jump across the world and see how it goes see what happens (laughs) and it was actually a few people had suggested what have you got to lose why don't you put your name in the hat even if you don't get the job maybe another job will open up if someone moves up into that slot there may be a job that that falls underneath it just give it a go And I was also in a space where I was looking for something else, what's next? Because I didn't want to stay within a research group. I wanted my own independent career, whether it was in in the university or industry or back in the teaching space. I wanted to branch out again. And so I applied and there was four people interviewed. It was an international search for the director of biotech. And to my surprise, I got the interview. There was four people interviewed, three white men and me, <laughs> me having just got to level C. And some of the applicants were professors. And so I, I guess in my mind, there's also this imposter syndrome that exists. Mm. And it's very real for women in all walks of life, but particularly, I think, in science. And so in your mind, you're going, well, great, I've got an interview. And then you're thinking, am I cheap? easy to interview because I'm on site mm. and easy to reject because I've only just got to level C. Mm. And so you undervalue what you have. What I didn't necessarily appreciate as much as I should have is I had industry skills, I had teaching skills, I had commercialization skills, I had science skills. I had all the skills that were perfect to do that job and I also had the management skills to match. And so I was flattered to and honored to get the biotech position. And I absolutely love it. So I went having been at level C for three months, I I was directly promoted to level E as a professor. And I've just just had my confirmation of appointment interviews and it's all gone great. And so absolutely it is the best job in the world.
0: Absolutely amazing. I think with all that diversity of experience, you can really give us some good insights into our sort of quick fire question. <laughs> so to begin with, can you tell us which woman or women have really been the most
1: influential in your life? I would love to say it's a woman, but it's it's actually a man and it's my dad. That's totally and okay. I think I, I appreciate his honesty, his integrity and his support for everyone, because he was in the police, and Mm. he, he certainly had a strong work ethic and was very much in the police to help people. And I think that's something I admire more than
0: anything. And I think that is a great lesson to absorb from anyone, be they male or female. It's really an important thing to carry with you. Overall, do you think that women today face more challenges than women 20 years ago, insofar as you know there's still gender bias but it's a lot it's a lot more subtle these days or do you think it's do you think it's changed and you know we're just in a much
1: better position i'm optimistic you know i i have to look at my students and look at my sons and look at their school environment and i am very optimistic i think that there will there will be continue to be challenges of course and like i said imposter syndrome is a real thing and sponsorship along the way and by that i mean Other women noticing the qualities you have that you may not see in yourself. That was what inspired me to apply for the job that I now have, Um, was Joanne Blanchfield actually said, you should apply for that job. And I have a lot of good female friends that, that are very supportive along the way. So I think I'm very optimistic. I think that attitudes are changing for the better. And every generation I see go past, I think there's a more, a greater acknowledgement, a greater acceptance, a greater awareness. People are talking about it and I think that can only be a positive thing. We have a long way to go, but I, I look at, say, Mary Garson's generation and you see her sat in a sea full of men in a conference. That's very unusual these days. And I wouldn't say it never happens, but I have a real admiration for her and her journey through science. Because that's obviously been a very, very challenging one, and I have benefited from her generation, and I hope people will benefit from my generation.
0: So, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give to women in science in the next generation?
1: Take risks. (laughs) 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 I think don't be frightened to put your name in the hat. You have to look at the skills you have and have a have a belief in yourself, and. The worst you can get by putting your name in the hat is a rejection or a no. But you never know know until you try. You never know until you try.
0: Brilliant. Well, what a fascinating and diverse journey. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Avril.
1: It's a pleasure. It's it's an honour to be part of this. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Well, that's all for this episode and for the first series of UQ's Women in Science podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the incredible stories of just some of our inspirational female scientists. And we look forward to bringing you more soon. This Women in Science podcast series is produced by Dr. Marloos Decker, Dr. Marina Fortez, Linda McDougall, and Matt Taylor. Technical production is by Daniel Seed. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short, and thank you for listening.